For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will speak to me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Thank you, Josh. So we're just going to pray now for Rich as he comes up and speaks God's message to us today. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for Rich and thank you for his obedience and listening to you. And we are confident that you have gone ahead, that you have given your message to him to bring to us today. Amen. Well, good morning. Nice to be back. And nice to really be back, rather than just standing in my classroom pretending to be back. Our family used to visit um, quite a large Christian bookshop in our local area. And in one far corner was a TV with Veggie Tales running pretty permanently. So we'd go with our kids, and they'd sit in the corner and watch telly. And we could browse to our heart's content. It was great. They sold books, obviously, but they also sold CDs, if any of you remember what those are, and DVDs and mugs and posters and ornaments and T-shirts and everything. And one of the common slogans found on those was, of course, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, sometimes shortened simply to I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. It's been a bumper sticker for decades. But what does it actually mean? And in fact, is it encouraging at all? And before we, we can understand it, we really have to understand the context in which Jeremiah is writing, the historical context. Where is Jeremiah? Where are the people he's writing to? What is going on? And it's 607 BC, and the people of Judah, the southern um, half of God's people, if you like, are forced into submission by King Nebuchadnezzar II. And he took many of the finest and the brightest away from Jerusalem and away from the cities and down into Babylon. And those people included Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael. We might remember them as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, which you read about in Daniel. And they've been taken down into exile. And then three years after that, Judah aligns itself with Egypt and rebels against Nebuchadnezzar yet again. It was a foolish endeavor. Nebuchadnezzar deals with Egypt, lays siege to Jerusalem, captures it, loots it, captures the king and his family, and takes them and many others off into Babylon to join the first exiles but left many in the land to look after the vineyards, look after the city and its pastures. And he appoints a new king called Zedekiah to rule over the city. And nine years after that, Zedekiah also has a brain malfunction and rebels. And ignoring Jeremiah's warnings, he forms an alliance with Edom and Moab and Ammon and various other cities. 
and wants to overcome Nebuchadnezzar. But it was foolish. And Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem again, captures it, carries the vast majority off into exile. And the temple and the palaces and the important houses he burns to the ground. And throughout this period, Jeremiah is writing his 51-chapter-long prophecy. It's hardly surprising that he's known as a prophet of doom. Well, chapter 29 occurs after the very first captivity. Daniel and friends are down in Babylon. Um, and there are also a good number of prophets, inverted commas. And what are these exiled prophets saying? Well, they're repeatedly telling these Hebrews that God is going to rescue them very soon. God will return them to Jerusalem at any moment, give them prosperity, make them great, a nation to be feared. That's the message from the prophets of Babylon. And then Jeremiah writes chapter 29. And what does he say? Well, he says three things predominantly. He says, establish yourselves in the city. He says, encourage the welfare of the city. And he says, embrace God in his sovereignty. So back in verse 5 and 6, if you have the text before you, he writes, Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So the prophets of Babylon are saying, you're going to get back to the land of Israel very soon. It will be just a few days, a few weeks, and God will restore you and everything will be great. And Jeremiah says, establish yourselves in the land. It's going to be a long, long time. And he says in verse 8, don't listen to the prophets and diviners among you. you. They're false prophets. You're not getting out of this exile anytime soon. You're in it for the long haul. Establish yourselves in the city. And if we're Christians, there's a sense in which that's the case for us as well. We're exiled, if you like, from where we were originally. This sin-filled world is not our home. We're strangers in a foreign land, as the Apostle Peter puts it in chapter 1, verse 1. We're destined for eternal glory, but for now, as he writes, we are elect exiles. And whilst we're here, we should establish ourselves in the land. We're in it for the long haul. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. It takes a lifetime to make it to the end. And the prophets of our day might tell us that everything is getting better. We should be encouraged and not downhearted. But their message is rooted in fantasy and falsehood. Our country, our world, is in moral decline, running from the God who created us, ignoring, no, rebelling against his love poured out for them in Christ. Our country, our world, are hell-bent, just like the people of Babylon. So like the exiles in that foreign land, we too are to be patient. We're in it for the long haul. Establish yourselves in the land. But then Jeremiah follows this up with his second point, right in verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, number one, establish yourselves in the city. But number two, encourage the welfare of your city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. This is no time to be rebellious, folks. If you seek the best for the foreign city in which you find yourselves, this will be best for them, and it will be best for you. 
Don't separate yourself or stand against customs just because they're unfamiliar. Familiarise yourself. Now, God is obviously not saying assimilate or compromise in terms of truth. Clearly not. He's already made that point. You are exiles in a foreign land. This is not how things are supposed to be eventually. So it's not compromise all you need in order to assimilate, but he is saying if the way they do things here is not against God's direct will, then fit in with that. Don't stir where stirring up is not necessary. Let it go. And we may be Christians in an anti-Christian world, standing against an ever-increasing tide, standing for the truth, and indeed we should do that. But also we should be encouraging the welfare of our city and of our country and of our world. Seek to be a blessing, not a curse. To build up, not to tear down with our words, with our actions. Do we urge our politicians towards more godly policies and lawmaking? Do we seek the best for our bosses, our colleagues, our friends? Do we try not just to stoop, those who, stoop to those who have less, but to raise them up? Do we pray for our city, for our country, for our world? As God's church, are we a force for good in our society? And sure, our prime message to a lost world is its desperate need of salvation. Because without Christ we have nothing. And we are nothing. And we're heading for hell and destruction. And that message of the eternal future to which we look, if we're Christians, is vitally important. And the eternal future of our friends, our family, our neighbours, our colleagues, our town, is far more important than their physical and emotional and mental well-being. But that doesn't mean those things should be neglected. Quite the opposite. Jeremiah speaks to people in exile in a foreign land, people who serve other gods like most of the people of Surrey do. Money, health, sex, entertainment, approval, earthly glory, whatever it might be. And as Christians, we're called not only to speak the gospel, but to seek for their good. Now, of course, speaking the gospel is seeking for their good. Don't get me wrong but seek for their good and not their harm. Not endorsing or serving false gods, not endorsing sin, but seeking for practical and spiritual good. So it's not just establish yourselves in the city, it is also encourage the welfare of the city. And then Jeremiah's third point sits right in the middle of his second, embrace God in his sovereignty. If you have the text, it's right there in the middle of verse 7. This exile in which they find themselves is not some tragedy which God is in the process of trying to sort out. It's not a disaster where God is saying, oh no, what am I going to do now? No, God is totally sovereign. Do you see it in verse 7? Seek the welfare of the city where what? Where I have sent you into exile. God is in total control. It's not a mistake. Now, these Jews in Babylon should have known that. I mean, God warned them repeatedly about it. From the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30, Moses warns the people if they rebel against the Lord, they will not live long in the land. Prophets repeatedly warned them that the Lord wouldn't contend with their idolatry forever. If they didn't repent, devastation would come. Back in Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah has already prophesied the Israelites would endure 70 years in exile. Why? Because despite all the warnings and pleadings of God's prophets, the people continue to rebel in idolatry and immorality. 
They haven't kept God's decrees. The land has not had its Sabbath rests week by week, year by year. So God brings exile upon them as punishment for their rebellion. You're probably aware exile is quite a big theme running through the whole Bible. Beginning in Genesis 3, of course, where God provides for his children a garden in which to live and to grow and to love and to take care of. But Adam and Eve rebel. And what happens? Exile. Exile because of their sin. Abraham moves from Ur into the land of promise, but spends a good deal of his time in exile from that land. Moses is exiled from his land for the majority of his life. The northern kingdom of Israel is exiled because of their rejection and rebellion against God. That's 120 years before Jeremiah. And now we have a Babylonian exile of the people of Judah. They're exiled because of their sin. But sin is not the only reason for exile. Exile is also a distinct act of God's mercy. Strange, though that may sound. I mean, imagine if Adam and Eve had stayed in the garden. They could have lived forever in a world tainted by sin and rebellion, hiding from God, hiding from each other. That would have been a literal hell on earth. So they were exiled. Until the sin problem is fixed. So exile is not only a punishment, it's also a great mercy. And the same is true here. Judah is exiled because of her sin. But it's also a great act of mercy. What's God's intention in the exile? Jeremiah 29 verse 10. Thus says the Lord, in other words, this is a truly prophetic word, not a false one. These are the words of the almighty God of heaven. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. In other words, after these 70 years, I will fulfill my promise to you. And what was that promise? Oh yes, he reminds us in verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. So this is not a promise for the here and now. This is a promise for the long term. And for some of these exiles at least, they won't live to see their return to Jerusalem. Many of them will die before it ever happens. We're always in such a hurry, aren't we? Instant this, instant that. When things go wrong, we want them fixed right away. We want to stop, stop suffering before it even starts. We want to put things right now. Set things straight now. Put things in order now. Get justice done now. But it seems that this isn't always God's way. Sometimes God wants us to sit in the pain, to live with the struggle. His interest is not primarily in taking away our suffering now, but in preventing our suffering then. Like the people of Judah who've been rebelling against God, there may be some here who still live in rebellion against God, either overtly or covertly, running after the gods of this world, ignoring the God of heaven. And living that way spells trouble. God promises it. Many of these exiles never repented, never returned to God, never sought his help. 
died in a foreign land without God and without hope. Do not be like them. Seek instead the God who loves you, even in the exile. Ask him for forgiveness. Submit to him. Because exile isn't just an act of judgment, it is also an act of mercy. Because he wants to give you a hope and a future beyond your wildest dreams. It was into the exile, into the midst of this broken and fallen world that Jesus stepped down into darkness, wasn't it? Offers himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. If we would but return to him, and if we do that, our eternal hope is secured. God's plans are not the here and now pain relief. It's not ibuprofen for a broken arm. It's not a sticking plaster on an open fracture. It's far deeper, far more reaching, life-saving surgery on us. And for many of us, that surgery is long and hard and painful, but it is for our good. Because God is good, and he knows the plans he has for our eventual future. This is not some coffee mug slogan. Every little thing's going to be all right, kind of pat on the back. His plans are long-term. Peter writes, To those who are elect exiles, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Once you come to trust in Jesus for, your, for, the, uh, for the forgiveness of your sins, once, once you submit to him as the author of your salvation and the perfecter of your faith, then you're in exile. And this sin-filled and sin-fueled world is no longer your home. You look forward to a city whose foundations, whose architect, whose builder is God. And we're strangers here in reverent fear. And the purpose of our time in exile is to bring the gospel to the foreign land in which we live and to prepare us for that final and joyful day when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take us home. What joy will fill our hearts. And at the end of our earthly sojourn, God's wonderful and glorious and marvellous and amazing and astounding plans for us will finally be realised. So in exile... How do we conduct ourselves? One, we establish ourselves in the land. We live our lives in reverent fear. We marry, we give in marriage, we work, we rest, we play, we strive, we struggle, we enjoy, we endure. And amidst all that, number two, we encourage the welfare of our land. Seeking for, seeking for its good, excuse me, and not for ours. Not compromising on the truth, but taking part in the places we find ourselves. And then thirdly, we embrace the sovereignty of God who put us here in the first place. Looking forward to that great day when the new Jerusalem will descend to a renewed earth, sinless, sin-free and glorious. He is in charge, utterly dependable. And if we truly are his people, we have an imperishable hope and a wonderful future. A future in which we enjoy the glory of heaven and grow ever closer to the Lord Jesus himself, our saviour, our redeemer, and our friend. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we want to thank you and praise you that you do know the plans that you have for us. And we know that in the immediate term, those plans might be difficult for us to endure. And some of us struggle and some of us suffer. And all of us do at some point. But we know that your plans are not just about the here and now, they are about the eternal. And we thank you and praise you that your plans for our eventual future are glorious and beyond our wildest dreams. And all because you died that we might live, that you love us and you lead us into that eternity to which you call us. And we bring you our praise. Amen. Amen.